Today's reading, we're starting from chapter 7 of Acts, verse 54, if you turn to that with me. So from verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Go to verse nine, uh, chapter 9 now. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of, Tar of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. 
Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out of among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a personal God and you personally encounter us. Uh, We thank you for this uh, sermon series over the last two months where we've seen little pictures of how Jesus encountered various people throughout his time here on earth and the amazing transformation that he brought into people's lives and the amazing impact that he had not just on them, but through them. We pray as we come to the end of the sermon series, as we look at uh, this amazing encounter that Jesus had with Saul, the the murderous persecutor uh, of your people, of you, uh, that we'll be able to be greatly encouraged by the Savior that you are, uh, the power, the sovereignty of your grace and the way that you use those you save uh, for great impact, both personally and in an outflowing way. Please encourage us, we pray, through your word this morning, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, can you think of someone in your life, right, a Christian in your life, who, if they didn't exist in your life, would create a huge hole in your life? Right? A Christian in your life that you can think of, that if they didn't exist will create a huge hole uh, in your life. Maybe it's an auntie, right? The only one, the only Christian in the family uh, who brought you to church when you were young. The only Christian who had been evangelizing to the rest of your family. And, and, and slowly you came to faith. And then maybe your sister and then your, your mom and then your dad and, and then other aunties and uncles. And maybe you have one of those kind of aunties in your family. Or, or maybe it was, it's a friend, who came excitedly and, and fearfully to you one day, maybe knocking on your dorm door, or, or, or coming up to you in school, nervously asking you to go to church, and asking you to read the Bible with him or her, pestering you for weeks until finally you said yes, and you went to church, and then slowly you came to faith. And then you then became an evangelist to your family and friends as well. Or perhaps it was the biggest influence is someone you've never met. Maybe his great-great-great-granddad, right, who became a Christian back in China. So long ago, you don't even know his name. But because of him, 
you grew up in a Christian family knowing Jesus your whole life. Or maybe it's an author you've never met, but you've read. And his books, her books, transformed your life, brought you to faith in Jesus. Or maybe it's an author of the Bible, right? one of the books that has a huge impact on your life. Have you ever wondered about the impact of a single convert, a single Christian, on your life? It made me think of uh, you know, a pebble in, in, a, in a pond. Right? It seems so kind of gentle and, and serene, this ripple effect, doesn't it? But it's such a powerful effect. Just one little pebble in a still pond can create waves that keep on going. If there wasn't friction, there wasn't gravity, it would keep on going forever, wouldn't it? Now, in our final sermon of this series, we'll be looking at one of the um, most famous encounters that Jesus had. Right? He met the apostle uh, Paul when he was Saul the persecutor on the road to Damascus. Uh, most people who've grown up in the Christian circles kind of know about this story, this famous encounter. Now, we know Saul more as Paul. He's got two names, all right? Uh, and he's the apostle who wrote half of the New Testament, right? 13 of the 26 books of the New Testament are probably written by uh, the apostle Paul. Now, what we're going to see this morning as we look at Jesus' encounter with Saul is that there are two big things, right? Two big things. One is on the human side of things. On the human side of things, we see the personal transformative power of salvation, right? The personal transformative power of salvation that leads to overflowing impact in other people's lives, right? That's the human side of things, right? Paul personally, and an impact on others. But we also see on a divine side, on the divine side of things, how God is sovereign over salvation and sovereign over his salvation plans for the world. That the story of Saul isn't just personal, it's cosmic, right? It's part of God's sovereign salvation plans for the world. And this uh, salvation power and this salvation impact isn't just for Paul. is isn't just for Saul, it's for us here today as well. It's for us to feel the impact of God's sovereign power and salvation and for God to use us to impact other people as well. Now, so who's Paul? Right? So who's Paul? Now, let's hear it from Paul's own lips uh, about what he was like when he was growing up. He says this, right? I'm a Jew, this is Saul speaking, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city that is Jerusalem, uh, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Right? He's speaking to a bunch of Jews. And then later on, in Galatians 1, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous, right? passionate was I for the traditions of my fathers. He continues on in another place. He was circumcised on the eighth day uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, to some of you, to some of us, these three verses mean very little to us, right? What is the significance of all these details, you might be asking? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Well, what Saul is basically saying in these three verses is, I am as legit a Jew as you're going to find, right? I am the Jew of the Jew, the best of the best when it comes to being a Jew. Now, you've got to understand just being a Jew in itself meant something very significant, very great. The Jews were the Old Testament chosen people of God. Out of the, all the peoples of the world, God had placed His love, had chosen out Israel to call them to be His children, right? 
But he's not just a Jew. That's great enough, but he's not just a Jew, right? Saul would tell us, I'm a top-notch, highly credentialed, best-of-the-best kind of Jew. Right? In these details, he's basically saying that my heritage, right, my upbringing is spot-on. I've attained every religious and professional milestone. I've personally been mentored by the top religious leader, and I taught my class. Right? Humble brag, but I taught my class. Being the most gifted, most hardworking, most law-abiding, and highest achieving of my peers. Now, I was thinking about an illustration from Australia, but because we're a tall poppy syndrome, cut everyone down culture, there isn't really anyone who kind of can make any kind of claims, right? So I'm going to go with the Singapore side of things. If you're a Singaporean, you'll get this. And if you don't, well, you, you'll probably get it too, I think. It's like a Singaporean boasting of being born in a respectable heartland area, working their way through Raffles Institute, getting a scholarship at National University of Singapore, and then personally being mentored by Kwa Kim Lee, managing director and partner of Lee & Lee, right, Lee Kuan Yew's firm. Uh, and of course, one of the top 4G leaders in the PAP, right, all these letters and numbers. But basically, if you're a Singaporean, everyone will be like, wow, right, that's the best. And that's what Saul was. Now, so you may be asking at this point, so what's so bad about Saul? Right, best of the best Jew, right, top of the class, what's so wrong about that? Now, if you were a Jew, you'd think highly of him, right? Saul would be your idol, okay? He'll win Australian Idol, Singapore Idol. He'll win all the citizenship awards, right? Man of the Year, Citizens of the Year. The only people who wouldn't like him are those who are jealous, right, of how good he was. Now, there's a bit of Philippians 3, verse 6 that I didn't read out to you. Right? Can you see the little brackets that I crossed out here? Dot, dot, dot. I want to add one more thing that he says about himself in the middle of that. All right, I'll start from the end of verse 5. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It's weird, isn't it? In the middle of there, he talks about how in his zeal for God, okay, it's for God, he was a persecutor of the church. You see, Saul, the most devout of Jews, the blamelessly righteous, law-abiding man of God, is a persecutor of the church. Now, if you don't know much, you're probably thinking, what's the deal with this, right? How can someone who's supposedly so godly uh, be persecuting the church? And what kind of persecution are we talking about? And why? That's a big question, isn't it? Why would Saul do this? Now, for that, we turn to Acts 7, and let's hear Paul's story, right? Saul's story. Like, Acts 7, open your Bibles there. We're going to follow along the story, okay? It's the first time we actually meet Saul in the storyline of the Bible, so the other verses I read out before, they were after the fact, Saul reflecting on his past, right? But Acts 7, in terms of narrative storyline, is when we first meet Saul, this guy, okay, who lived around AD 40, 50, okay, around there, okay, when he's an adult. He makes one heck of a dramatic entrance in Acts 7, right? As Andrew mentioned to us before, Acts 7, right, this chapter is about Stephen, uh, who's a Christian, hauled before the anti-Christian Jewish authorities and a hostile Jewish crowd, and interrogated for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stephen has given a long speech that the heart of it says that the Jews have had a long history of rejecting God's messengers, and especially his final messenger, his only son, the son of God, Jesus Christ. Now the Jewish leaders and crowd are so incensed, so outraged at the message that Stephen brought that they stoned him to death. Right? So dramatic end, chapter 7, 
And this is where we meet our guy Saul. Right here, chapter 7, verse 58, Saul makes his ominous entrance. Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's persecution. Now you can almost imagine the scene. I want you to imagine. I was going to put a picture there, but I thought, use your imagination, right? Stephen is hauled out of the city gates, being stoned, and you see this young man, probably his arms kind of crossed, you know, like Taoke, right, boss of the, the construction site, or maybe hands on hips, and it's his garments on his, on his feet because they need somewhere to store their clothes as they free their arms to throw, and, and he's there nodding his head in approval, and you're wondering, what is his role in all this persecution? We don't have to wonder very long because straight away in chapter 8, verse 1, he tells us, right? And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now Paul's own words about his time here was this. I, this is Saul speaking, right? Persecuted this way to the death. To the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. This way obviously being the Christian way. And so we see from a passive onlooker to possibly the leader of the anti-Christian movement of the time. The first anti-Christian movement of the time. You see that Paul really takes it upon himself, sorry, Saul really takes it upon himself to travel far and wide, traveling hundreds of kilometers to drag Christians to jail, to be violent against them, and even to kill them, it would seem. So the question is, why? Why would a devout Jew who loves God do this to Christians? And the answer that we see is we read Paul's story and explanation and who he was and what he did, And the answer is because Jesus Christ and the Christian faith threatened his beliefs. Jesus Christ and the Christian faith threatened his beliefs. He was so certain of his beliefs, so set in his ways, so convinced that the Christians were speaking blasphemy, right? Saying the wrong things about God, that he knew who God was and the way to God, that they didn't. He was so set in his ways about that, that he did everything that he could to prevent this this way, this, this new faith from, from rising up, from having a voice, from even considering what they had to say. Being Jew was his whole life. Being Jewish was his whole life. Knowing the law and obeying it was his ticket to heaven. He was so sure of that. Believing and living out the law was his way to heaven. To him, the Jewish Messiah was supposed to be kingly. He was supposed to be victorious and triumphant. Not this Jesus guy who suffered and definitely not the guy who died so shamefully on a Roman cross. Definitely not him. Definitely not a message of salvation by grace through faith. That we are not deserving, that we cannot earn our way by our obedience. Definitely not that. Because I know what it is to get right with God. That at the heart was Saul's problem, his, his issue. He, he wouldn't have a bar of this Christian thing, and so he's going to shut it down. This religiously devout, self-righteously perfect man 
became someone capable of hunting people down, hurting people, becoming violent, becoming a murderous persecutor of Christians. And here we see, isn't it, that being 100% sincere doesn't mean that you're 100% correct or true. Sincerity isn't a measure of truth. Saul had gotten it so wrong. And so we get to chapter 9. We get to chapter 9, where Jesus encounters Saul. The risen Lord and Savior of the world meets the chief of sinners, which is what Saul calls himself. Right? The Savior of the world meets the chief of sinners. Chapter 9, verse 1. Right? Have follow along. And Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, Jesus stops Saul right in the middle of his murderous mission, right? Stops him right in his tracks and grabs his attention in a way that every Jew, especially a Jew like him, would understand, right? When have you heard before about flashing lights, a voice from heaven? Well, you know, if you're a Jew, you go back to Moses, right? The burning bush. You go back to, 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 to Israel at Mount Sinai. And Paul knows what to do, right? A Jew knows what to do. You fall on your face. You get to the ground. Because you're in the presence of divinity, aren't you? You're in the presence of God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus makes it clear to Saul, when you persecute a Christian, you are persecuting me. Saul needed to know that Christians represented the very Son of God himself. The crucified one lives. He is risen and he really is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Saul had gotten it so wrong, he had been so blind. Right? He had been so convinced that his zeal was for God, that he was absolutely in the right about rejecting Jesus Christ and persecuting Christians in the name of God. He had been utterly blind. And so we get this really interesting scene where he, he finds out who Jesus is, but he doesn't walk away knowing and seeing. He walks away blind. Kind of strange, right? When you think about it, you would think that he would be walking away seeing. What I suspect is happening here is that the three days in which he's supernaturally blinded is for him to experience physically what he had been going through spiritually for so much of his life, perhaps his whole life. That these three days of physical blindness was to teach him how blind spiritually he had been to understanding God and his saving ways, and especially in not seeing Jesus clearly for who he was. But as we know, blindness gives way to sight. Three days later, Ananias comes and restores his sight. Now, there are a lot of miracle stories in the Gospels of Jesus where he healed blind people and made them to see. I love those stories, right? I, I love all the different miracles. I, I love that one because sight is so important. Uh, you ever played those, the, the game, uh, Would You Rather Be? You ever play that? That's a bit... I don't know. The game is pretty simple. Would you rather be? 
your friend asks you, and then they give you two options. Would you rather be deaf or blind? Right? Would you rather have no limbs or blind? Right? Have you played that? I don't know. Kids get bored, and they just come up with these random games. And I, when I play those kind of games, if you ask me anything, some other disability or blindness, I would choose the other disability, right? Seeing is so important to me, right? To be able to engage with the world, so much of life is lived and enjoyed through our sight. So much knowledge is taken in through sight. When Jesus causes the blind to see, it is not just the physical sight that he's on about. It's spiritual sight. To not be able to see the truth about God, to be spiritually blind, that makes us completely without purpose. To not be able to see Jesus for who He is is to be without a Savior, is to be without life. Spiritual sight. Is there anything better? Seeing Jesus for who He is, is there anything better? Now, while Saul is blind, the Lord Jesus is preparing a Christian man called Ananias to seek out Saul and to lay hands on him to regain his sight. Now, you hear the story, right? Ananias kind of freaks out a little bit, as you can imagine. Right? Can you imagine being Ananias? Well, Saul was Saul, right? His, his reputation preceded him. Everybody who's a Christian knew this murderous persecutor of the Christian church. And so, verse 13, right? Verse 13, after uh, Jesus tells Ananias to go see Paul, uh, sorry, see Saul, Ananias answered, chapter 9, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's freaking out. And Jesus said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You see, Saul's conversion is immensely personal for Saul, of course. Right? He was blind, but now he sees. But there's more going on for Saul. Saul's conversion is part of God's sovereign plan for the gospel going out. A chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, right? to the nations, to come before kings and even to preach to his own people. In Galatians 1, Paul says this, But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, and so on, right? Set apart before I was born, called me by his grace, pleased to reveal himself to me that I might be a gospel preacher among the nations. God had set apart Saul before he was even born. Then called by God's grace in his lifetime, and given the mission to preach the gospel. It's the same kind of language that Paul would use to describe all believers, all who are in, in Christ. Ephesians 1 says this. Sorry, it's a bit small, right? But I'll read it to you, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before, sorry, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you hear that, right? Sovereign grace. Glorious grace. 
chosen before the creation of the world and called in time to belong to Jesus. We see this displayed in Saul's conversion and commission, and we see it gloriously displayed in all believers, including us. Now, Saul becoming a Christian, that's amazing, isn't it? Put yourself into the story. Imagine the impact of his conversion. Verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Now for us, if we're blessed enough in life, we get to see someone that no one no one ever thinks will ever come to faith, right? It's a real blessing to be able to know someone who you think, no way, Jose, will they ever become a Christian. And then suddenly you see transformation right before your eyes. Uh, first person that comes to mind that some of you may know is Wally. You know Wally? Wallace Chin, right? I heard stories, I didn't know him back then, but I heard stories of how he was like in secondary school. He's from ACS, right? Enough said. Sorry. Anyway, he was like the worst version. This is an ACS guy talking about him, okay? He was the worst version, right? ACS people have this reputation, true or not, I don't know, right? About being arrogant, about being very self-sufficient, about being very rich. And Wally was like the worst example of that, right? Apparently, he was that guy, but worse. The worst of the worst. Self-centered, proud, boorish man. But then over time, as we got to know him, as you got to know the gospel, we saw transformation, right? Uh, and through the years, such a powerful, miraculous change. Wally is now second year at Evangelical Theological College in Singapore. And he's up there at church, you know, a couple times a year. He's at weddings, preaching the gospel, pastoring people, persevering in sacrificially and humbly serving others. Right? Some of you may know, you, you, you think of someone in your life, but perhaps you've had the blessing or being able to see this kind of amazing transformation in someone. But we see it in Saul. In the immediate aftermath of Saul's conversion, his impact was felt by those around him. People were amazed, as you would be, right? They were amazed. And many came to faith because of him. At the same time, the once persecutor became persecuted, right? As you'd imagine, right? Someone else became Saul and persecuted Saul the one who is now a follower of Jesus. Impact, both positive and negative. The genuine, life-changing conversions always have an impact. Now, Saul's impact is, of course, greater than most. He will go to preach throughout almost all of Asia in his lifetime, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he will author half of the New Testament books. And his impact will go beyond his lifetime down through the years, centuries, and millennia to today. Saul, also known as Paul, possibly became the greatest, most influential Christian who ever lived. Right? If you don't consider Christ a Christian, he's the Christ. The Christian with the biggest impact is probably Paul. Now, what kind of lessons can we learn? Hopefully, you've already been impacted by something along the way, but what kind of lessons can we learn this morning from this? The first question I want to ask is who can be saved? Who can be saved? Now, oftentimes, when we think about people who are unsavable, we often think of those who are really evil, right? really wicked. 
You know, the Satanists, the murderers, the, the rapists, the pedophiles, and so on. And it's true, right, that they seem really far away from being saved. And it's important that we know that even they can be saved, that there is no sin too great to be forgiven. The Savior of the world certainly can save sinners like that, and what a glorious salvation that would be. Right? Prison ministries, we often hear great stories about this kind of transformation of these people steeped in wickedness come to faith in Jesus. But the story of Saul isn't really that story, is it? Yes, he was violent, and yes, he was a murderer. But the heart of his sin, the reason why he called himself the chief of sinners was because of his religious self-righteousness. It was because of his religious self-righteousness. Because of his refusal to let go of his beliefs, refusal to consider the claims of Jesus and his followers. It is because of his religious self-righteousness that he rejected the true Lord, Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in a letter in 1 Timothy where he describes himself as being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He was the one who, in rejecting Jesus, made himself to be the chief of sinners because he was, he was the chief blasphemer. He set his face against Jesus Christ, rejected him, and he persecuted his believers. It was that that made him do those violent and murderous things, right? But the heart of it was because of religious self-righteousness. Now, the sin of Saul, it's much more what we are likely to encounter today in our family and friends around us, isn't it? We, we rarely have family friends who are murderers and rapists and pedophiles, right? Rarely. But we have a lot of friends who are very convinced in what they believe. Whether it's a religious conviction, or whether it's a life philosophy, or whether it is a self-rule, a self-righteousness, a self-directed way of life, that I will be the captain of my ship, the boss of my own life. They are those who are utterly ignorant, yet staunch in their unbelief, and they will not have a bar of listening about Christianity or about Jesus because they are so convicted of their own position. Have you met people like that in your life? And perhaps have you given up hope? The walls are so high and so thick, maybe you've given up hope. The precious lesson for us is this this morning. Don't give up hope. If someone self-titled the chief of sinners, can be saved so powerfully by God, by sovereign grace. The message is that anyone can be. So keep pressing on. The next question then is, how can they be saved, right? If, If they're so far away, it seems, how can they be saved? Well, in just the same way as Saul was, as we were, is when we encounter Jesus. That's how everyone is saved. Is when they encounter Jesus. When Jesus opens our eyes, to know God's sovereign grace and glorious grace, to know that God has chosen many to belong to Him, to know that He calls people to trust in Jesus, to be justified and saved. That's how we know that people can be saved. And so we keep praying, don't we? We keep praying for God's sovereign grace to be at work. We pray for Jesus to open blind eyes. For there's no amount of blindness that, can he, that He can't heal, no amount of scales that He can't remove. Now, on our part, what can we do? Well, God is doing His bit of opening blind eyes, but we are presenting the gospel. The New Testament doesn't promise us 
that Jesus will appear in a bright light to every single one of us and our family and our friends. He never promises that. Instead, he calls us to be on the mission of the gospel. There's a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it's through the gospel that our blind eyes are opened. It's the word of the gospel, the message that we have that opens blind eyes today. That is God's promise. So on our part, we pray and we preach. That's how people are saved, even people who seem unsavable to us. Now finally, we see in, in Saul the tremendous impact of a converted life. We ourselves have been impacted by Paul, haven't we? If you've ever read any of his books, you've ever had any memory verse from his books that you've treasured, you've been impacted by Saul. And we've been impacted by other converts as well, haven't we? Maybe you never thought about it before. And I want you to think about who has impacted your life so that you're on the journey that you are today. Think of the people in your life who, because of their faith in Christ, has impacted yours. Don't take for granted. You're born into a Christian family. Most people do not appreciate their Christian parents. Yes, they are flawed. Yes, they might have annoyed us. But by the fact that they are Christian has been a huge impact on your life in ways that you probably can't even imagine. Think of those whom God has brought across your path in life. Those whose faith has been real and lived out and shared so that you're able to see and to, to learn and to trust and to change and to follow Jesus yourself. Think of those people so that you can feel the impact of God bringing people to faith. The overflowing, powerful, ripple effect of converted lives. Think of these people so that you can give thanks to God and perhaps even give thanks to them for the impact they've had on your life. But I want you also to think of yourself and your conversion impacting others. Will you be that pebble that creates this outflowing impact to others around you? I know some of you are the only Christian in your family, and for that you suffer for it. Over the last couple of months, people have gone home on the holidays and they've come back and talked about how they they became Christian last year or the year before, and they came back to a non-Christian family realizing how hard it was to go home to a non-Christian family. Been struggle, but can you imagine how God will use you, how God will use them, not just in this lifetime, but perhaps in the future generations? They could be the auntie that brings conversion to generations. They could be the father that brings generations of Christianity down through the next few hundred years. Are you struggling in your faith? Barely keeping afloat? Well, your perseverance can inspire others. Your, your, your perseverance can inspire others. Are you walking closely with the Lord and faithful to Him and faithful in your service? Well, there's no doubt then that you are being impactful to the people around you. God is sovereign in grace and powerful to save and powerful to use each and every one of us for His great impact, for His glory. Let's pray. O sovereign God, God of glorious grace, to you we give praise and we give honor and thanks. In the conversion of Saul and the way that you commissioned him to serve you, in the way that he had such a huge impact, not just on the people around him, but on millions and perhaps billions of people down through the generations, we give you amazing thanks. 
we thank you that it gives us hope that there is no one beyond your power to save. It gives us great encouragement to see that kind of impact that we could have in our own conversion, in our own walk with Jesus. We pray, Father, that you help us to see your power at work in and amongst us. That we'll keep being faithful to Jesus and keep being a channel of blessing to others. For we pray in Jesus' name.